Well, if you were to write a book about who Jesus is, I wonder what we would hear from how he has revealed himself to you and his faithfulness and his kindness. Uh, We have 66 books given to us about our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. I was looking at a children's curriculum, just reminded this weekend, a children's curriculum is called Every Page Whispers His Name. Every Story Whispers His Name. The first part of our Bibles, as you know, the first 39 books really just get us, get our heart pumping and get us anticipating the arrival of this wondrous, seemingly too good to be true Messiah. And then he bursts on the pages in Matthew chapter one, the completing books, 27 books of our Bible, then just describe the person and work and the continuing work, the future work of this marvelous one, Jesus Christ. The sermon series that we're in is called In Their Shoes, and there are times and there are ways in which to teach about the 12 followers of Christ, the 12 disciples of Christ, and to learn from their lives. And maybe you've sat underneath some teaching, and maybe you've read some books about each of the disciples. But our desire in the series is not to learn about the disciples. As a matter of fact, they wouldn't want us to learn centrally about them. Sometimes we, we get a little frustrated and, and inquisitive about wanting to know more about them. There's some, some details missing. Who were they? You know, there's a couple that we know some things about. The others are just kind of their names mentioned in the scriptures. But the whole point that every one of those uh, disciples who then became apostles uh, wanted us to know from the scriptures is it wasn't about them. And life really isn't about us. It's about Jesus Christ. And so if by any means their names are mentioned in the scriptures, their heart, their passion is to direct us unto the one who changed them, the one who forever transformed their lives and and really destined them to be by the side of Jesus Christ forever. And so they don't really want you to know much about them. What they want you to know about them is the one whom they wanted to know about, and that's Jesus. Who do you want people to know about in your life? Well, that's the title of the series is in their shoes so that we could see what they saw of Jesus so that we also, like John, could say he must increase and I must decrease. As to what the word magnify means and our our whole goal, the reason why Jesus has transformed our hearts is that we could magnify him, make him large. Oh, he's already great. What it means is to declare his largeness, his greatness, and his goodness. Turn with me in your copy of the scriptures, if you will, this morning to the first first page in John's gospel, John chapter 1. We're going to be looking in John 1 this morning and John 6 and John 12. And we want to see through the eyes and in the shoes of, of the fourth disciple in our series, Andrew. Andrew. Everyone is bringing people to something, or everyone is bringing something to people. We're really good potluckers. We love bringing something, and we love bringing people to something. Whether it is a better impression of ourselves that we want people to arrive at, or a shared opinion about a certain topic or an issue, or a place where we think someone needs to go, a person maybe they need to meet. If we are around people, chances are that we're bringers of some sort. 
And when you think about bringing something, you usually think about who or what you are bringing something or someone to. We have sign-ups for things like that, like our fellowship this evening. But what motivates us to bring something or someone or some, to someone or something to someone? Well, there's a variety of motivations. There's some, several of them listed here in our notes this morning. There's, sometimes there's greed. There's motivations of hunger. A motivation of bringing something to someone or someone to something. It also could be for reason of comfort. It could be for reason of provision or need or passion or excitement or love or even hatred. There's many as many motivations of the human heart motivate why we would bring someone to something or something or someone to something. We have a variety of motivations, and the fact is that sometimes they're not exactly pure within one category. Sometimes they're complex. We have a mixture, so to speak, of motivations. But it is in the arrival, in the meeting of the person with the thing or the person with the person... It is not in the bringing, but it is in the destination. It is in the arrival that the bringer anticipates something quite common, no matter what the motivation is that brought this situation to be. A transaction is made. And that's why, as bringers, we bring. We want to see the transaction. They bring, bringers bring because they anticipate the completion of a transaction. In the life of this fourth disciple listed in the list of the disciples, Andrew, we see one very prominent characteristic about him. Andrew is a bringer. He's a bringer. He's usually mentioned alongside of his brother Peter, but the few times when he's mentioned that we'll look at this morning, he's mentioned by himself, and he's seen very clearly in these, in these vignettes as being a bringer. That's what we come away with. Andrew's a bringer. Now, it would be really fun and possibly inspiring, as I had mentioned before, to encourage ourselves with the boldness and the passion of Andrew this morning as a bringer, to really really talk about us being bringers like Andrew. And God used his tenacious spirit in a mighty way. Andrew became a great man in the faith. But he would always be known as Peter's brother. And he would never write one of the books of the Bible or preach a great sermon that we can tell in front of large crowds like his brother Peter did, for example, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. We never hear about Andrew again when the Gospels conclude until we read that he's, along with the other faithful disciples in Acts 1, at the ascension of Christ. And that's it. He disappears from the scriptures. Only myths and traditions and some fairly reliable historic records tell the rest of the story. So tradition tells that Andrew would preach the gospel of Christ into the pagan regions of what we know today as the area around the Black Sea, if you want to think of uh, Western Russian area. Eventually, his effective ministry in that area to the pagans, to the cannibals, would yield fruit of the conversion of the governor's wife of that region. She would hear of the gospel of Christ and give her heart to the saving mercies of Christ, her heart being transformed. Well, this this infuriated the governor in the region. 
And in blind rage and jealousy, he, he tried to, to get her to, to really forsake and, and to, um, to turn away from her newfound faith. But all of his attempts were futile. So he turned his rage and jealousy upon Andrew. He ordered Andrew to be crucified in a decusset form, that is, an X-shaped cross. Tradition tells that Andrew hung alive on the cross, enduring insufferable agony for two full days as he wept, preaching to the crowds in the town square that they needed to turn their hearts to this Savior, Jesus Christ, whom he knew so well. For two full days, the gospel spoken out from his lips And it was causing a scene. So the governor ordered that the soldiers would remove him from this cross to which he clung to, if you could imagine that. They're trying to remove him from this cross, and he's clinging to it. And in the meantime, while he's clinging to this cross, he's confessing to Christ, let them not pull me from this cross that I could hang here like you did. And the story tells that with that prayer, the Lord took his spirit from his body. Well, history then goes on to record that his body would be laid to rest. And and actually, over a period of time, the remains would end up going in several different directions. I think it was in 1984, his skull ended up back in Greece. And some believe that some of his remains were taken as far west as Scotland in the 8th century where he became the patron saint of Scotland. If you think of St. Andrew, that would call that to mind. But he also became this, the patron saint of many Western, um, uh, Eastern European, Western Russian type countries like Russia and even Ukraine and Georgia and Barbados and, um, and Sicily and Greece and Cyprus and Romania would all consider him their patron saint. But Scotland kind of became an owner of him. And a matter of fact, the cross on Scotland's flag is called St. Andrew's Cross. Beginning in 1320 when it gained its independence. Well, Andrew is mentioned by name 12 times in the New Testament. In 10 of those times, he's mentioned alongside of Peter, his brother. And usually as Peter's brother. But Peter, on the other hand, as the brother of Andrew is mentioned 150 times. 12 times and 100. Oh, you're Peter's brother is how Andrew might have been known. Significant this morning is that Andrew was a bringer. He had brought the gospel witness to regions far away from Jerusalem. And that would be his legacy. But what I want us to focus in on this morning really is, is what's going on in the heart of Andrew. That is, what about Jesus caused Andrew to want others to meet him. What was it about Jesus that caused Andrew to want others to meet him? I'd like for us to consider that question this morning. There are three times in the Gospels where we see Andrew actively bringing people to Jesus. In John 1, we see him bringing his brother Peter to Jesus. Quite a monumental introduction there. Secondly, in John chapter 12, we see him bringing the Greeks to Jesus. And thirdly, in John chapter 6, we see him bringing a boy who has five loaves and two fish to Jesus. Let's look at these three stories and and look into clues and see what was it about Jesus that caused 
Andrew to want others to meet him. Let's see if that might speak to us this morning. So let's look firstly at the start of his own personal story and adventure with Christ in the first chapter of John. And so meet with me in John 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with the two of his disciples. That'd be John the Baptist with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He was first found He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Well, what was it that caused Andrew here, firstly, to want others to meet Jesus? I believe number one is because he recognized that Jesus could be a rescuer. That Jesus could be the rescuer of his own soul. Notice as he comments to Peter this, he says, We have found, we have found this one whom Moses and the prophets had told us about. We have found the Messiah. It was very interesting that Andrew says that we have found the Messiah. Next week, we're actually going to find out from another disciple, Philip, spoiler alert, that Jesus finds disciples. We have found the Messiah. Well, he centers in on this, and that is that he recognizes that he has found the rescuer. You see, all through Moses and the prophets' writings in the first 39 books of our Bible, everybody's looking for the rescuer. Everybody from Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve have fallen to sin, they begin to, to look for the rescuer. Everybody's looking for the rescuer. Everybody's looking for the last lamb. Everybody's looking for the perfect substitute. Everybody's looking for the conquering king. Everybody's looking for deliverance from sin inwardly and the curse of sin outwardly. Everybody's looking for a rescuer. So when, when Andrew says we have found the Messiah, he is saying we have found the deliverer, the one that God has anointed from on high and has sent to rescue us. You must come and see this rescuer. What Andrew wants Peter to recognize firstly is that Jesus can be the rescuer. It's important for us to know that Andrew was a faithful Jewish man. He's like his countrymen, Peter, James, and John, who had been looking for the coming of the promised Messiah. It is with that context that he seems drawn to the powerful declarations of John the Baptist who had been a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, was John's message. The way of the Lord would be to the heart, not any sort of golden brick road or any sort of street in Jerusalem. Prepare the way of the Lord into your own heart. There was a sense of urgency that he was hearing from John the Baptist. There was a sense of expectation that was driving John the Baptist's message that had come to convince many that the Messiah's arrival was imminent. He could be here at any moment. They were convinced he was on planet Earth by the means of John's 
content and passion and imminency and urgency of his preaching. So, with that in mind, that it could happen at any time, and in fact, hearing that it was happening at the moment, Andrew had a heart that was greatly anticipating the arrival and the meeting of Jesus. But it appears quite plainly that Andrew had become a follower of John the Baptist in this sense. And there is four things that we know to be true about Andrew as he's following John the Baptist. Number one, Andrew had come to a personal belief that he was a sinner in need of God's forgiveness and cleansing. Secondly, he had come to a sincere point of repentance in his life, casting off traditional Jewish ritualism in favor of genuine relationship with God through faith. He had come to recognize that all of his rituals, all of his routines were not sufficient, that he needed to engage in faith to have a relationship with God. Thirdly, a third truth about Andrew that we know, he had come to expect that the Messiah was imminent in his arrival and as a result of John the Baptist's prophecies. Then fourthly, he had come to a point, listen, of public testimony in his walk of faith. So genuine was his faith in God, so, so yearning was his heart to demonstrate the mercies that had changed his life forever. All of this had become so inwardly convincing that he wanted to be outwardly commanding. He wanted to be outwardly declaring this truth. He wasn't ashamed to let everybody know what had taken place invisibly and silently in his own heart. He wasn't going to keep his lips closed. And so this was true about Jesus. This was true about Andrew in meeting Jesus. So what about Jesus caused Andrew to want Peter to meet him? Well, it's plain to see. It's plain to see. Andrew had come to know Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. And he wanted Peter to know him too in that way. He was ready to abandon all pursuits in exchange for the forgiving mercy of Christ. There was no temple. There was no water. There was no ceremony. There was no bloodline that could say that he was a son of Abraham that could ever wash away his sins. Listen, this still remains true today. There's no temple. There's no water. There's no bloodline. There's no family relations, relations that can wash away the sins from the human heart. And Andrew had come to realize that by the preaching of John the Baptist, the work of the Spirit. He had found new life in Christ, and he was eager to share it with his brother right away. Well, notice that Andrew doesn't even use many words in his sermon to Peter. He just doesn't have a lot of words that's shared with us here in this passage. It, it, in fact, wasn't even this sermon at all. You could say he wasn't really that great of a witness. He doesn't take an hour to you know, break open the gospel and all this. He really doesn't preach a sermon at all. It was simple, it was direct, and it was full of truth. I have found the one who will deliver us from sin. Come and see for yourself. Listen, that's really the simplicity of the evangel. I have found the one who's changed my life. I've found the one who's forgiven my sins. You need to come and see. Come and see him. That's the invitation of an evangelist. That's the invitation of a gospel witness. Come and see. It's not many words. Just come and see. See the one who's changed my life. Look with him. Look with me at him. That was the witness technique, and it was quite effective. You see, Andrew needed to do the bringing, and Peter needed to be brought. He needed to meet Jesus, and then Jesus, in a sense, he needed to impart the forgiveness. The forgiveness needed to be imparted 
to Andrew and Peter. Really, all three of, all three of those really fall into their context in our lives. Number one, we need to be bringing Jesus and people to see Jesus. We bring people to restaurants, we bring people to concerts, we bring people to our home. We need to bring people to see Jesus. Now, secondly, why? Because people need to be brought. They didn't know. They don't know he's here. They don't know his witness. They don't know him. Just tell him, come and see. That's all I'm asking is come and see. See if he measures up to what you thought he would be like. And let's look together at him. And then Jesus brings. He's faithful. Listen, it's not like showing up when you have an appointment with someone and them not showing up. Jesus doesn't leave us feeling like he left us down when we bring people to Jesus. Well, the second story where we find uh, Andrew mentioned as a bringer is, is after uh, a period of teaching of Christ. And, and in this sense, Jesus has been preaching for a while and there has been a, a very large crowd surrounding Jesus at this time. Some say that the crowd that is included in John chapter 6, as you turn there, some say that that uh, this crowd was at least 15,000 people. Now, that's a lot of people, 15,000 people. Now, we know it as a feeding of the 5,000. We believe that, at least in historic times or tradition, there was the head of the household that was counted when there was a consensus taken. So you could kind of consider the head of household and then perhaps the wife and at least one child. We know Jewish families might be a little bit more busy than one child. And so we we just say it might even be 15,000 people. That's a lot of people. And here we find Andrew in front of this crowd after a period of teaching. And so let's look at how this story unfolds for Andrew in John chapter 6 and verse number 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, that's, by the way, is a very good question. Where are you going to buy bread to feed that many people? I mean, even here in Westerville. There's an impossibility. There's a crisis created by Christ's question that's meant to stir some, some hearts here. Verse 6, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Well, Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And Philip was probably right in ballpark in his estimate. That's a lot of money. <coughs> to just get one sample size of bread into the hands and mouth of each one of these followers. Verse number eight, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Oh man, he doesn't even get away from Simon Peter's brother. He doesn't get his own place. It's, it's Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Well, Jesus said, have the people sit down. 
And there was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. And then Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And we learn at the end of the story that there's 12 bushels left over. What is it about Jesus that Andrew wants this boy to meet? What causes Andrew to want this boy to meet Jesus? Secondly, it's a truth that we all must must apply to ourselves and that Jesus can provide enough. Jesus can provide enough. Andrew demonstrates, really in this passage, imperfect trust. Let me explain. He's not the model here of dauntless faith. I can't say to you this morning here, be like Andrew. Bring the little boy's lunch to Jesus and then ask, but I know this isn't enough. That's really not the lesson from this. Andrew does have some inclinations that Jesus can do some great things. But he's not all the way sure that Christ can or that he's going to feed these people. And that is to say, there are three things about Andrew in this. Number one, Andrew was aware of the presence of Christ in the midst of genuine neediness. Andrew doesn't go to Peter. He doesn't go to John or James or some of the other disciples and say, what are we going to do? But he does recognize that Jesus is in the middle of this very hungry situation. So that's a really good thing. But further than that, we recognize that Andrew was aware that Christ could consider the beginnings of answers and would at least sympathize with the needs, that Jesus was aware of the hunger. He was aware of the present, the pressure on the situation. What were they going to do in here? And he, he knew that Jesus was mindful, not only that Jesus was present, but also was sympathetic towards the needs. Andrew knew those two things, at least. But thirdly, Andrew was willing to offer to Jesus what he thought was an incomplete thought, an incomplete prayer, questioning what Jesus might do with it from there. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Oh, how far will they go? Well, we know, right? Oh, man, it's going to go really, really far. He begins the thought. He begins the question. He doesn't know the answer. But I wonder if even there's a little bit of rhetorical questioning going on. And I want us to ask ourselves and and put ourselves in the shoes of this in our everyday, not just with the feeding of the 5,000, but I'd like for us to think about our own prayers to Christ in this. How far will they go among so many? Is that a statement or a question? Well, it's obvious. There's no answer. There's an obvious answer. It's not really a question. It's what we call a rhetorical question. We don't need to say out loud the answer. I wonder, 
when we bring our problems, our insufficiencies, our needs to the Lord, do our prayers sound rhetorical? That is to say, do we come to the Lord with a heart full of faith and assurance that God not only can, but that he will answer our prayer? I would like to say, do we even ask the rhetorical? Not that that is the perfect type of prayer, but do we even begin to pray to the Lord? Sadly, I believe that many of us, and probably the common condition of a disciple of Christ, is that we don't very often pray for bread. Even though we've been commanded to do so, give us this day our daily bread. Well, secondly, this is a different conclusion than what Philip had come to recognize that Philip's conversation with Jesus has been different. But Philip comes to the conclusion that there is an answer to this, that it's half a year's wages. So Philip had thought about what could be done as a start, but he didn't know the end. And at least he verbalized his perplexity. And so the second question about our prayers is, first, first question was, do our prayers sound rhetorical? Like, Lord, you're not really going to do this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The second question is, do our prayers reflect honesty and transparency? Lord, I don't have it together. Lord, I don't have half a year's wages. Lord, I only have a little boy's lunch. And I'm willing to admit that to you. I'm willing to to lay down my, my attempts and my schemes to figure this out. And by the way, I'm not only talking about material provision, I'm talking about the many needs in our lives. Lord, I'm willing to be honest with you and stop scheming. I need you. And there's nothing around me that can help me right now. I'm willing to be honest about that. You know, sometimes being honest with the Lord begins with being honest with ourselves. And we see that actually with Philip and Andrew. They're at least honest about the situation. And that's why Jesus brings them to this point. Jesus has orchestrated this whole situation. He has brought this to this crisis moment. He's aware that this crowd has been building. He's aware of the time of day. He's aware of the hunger of the, of the body and of the heart. And so Jesus brings this whole point to this testing. Will these people be honest? And really, it's honesty with his disciples. And then Jesus will turn to the crowd, as you read in the longest chapter in John chapter 6, where Jesus turns to the crowd and says, I am better than the bread that came down from heaven from Moses in the wilderness. I am the bread of life. Unless you eat of me, you will surely die. And towards the end of John chapter 6, there's not 5,000 people standing there any longer. There's just a few disciples kicking crickets. And they recognize Jesus is, that he is the bread of life, which is far more important than the little boy's lunch. 
And when we come to that realization that it isn't the little boy's lunch that we need and it isn't a half year's wage that we need, but we need Jesus. We need to draw in close to him and we need every part of his sympathy, his concern, and we need every part of our transparency and honesty. We need every part of that transaction to take place. Well, the third thing about Andrew's interaction here is he brought the boy to Jesus and he says here, oh, don't you love that? Don't you love that? Jesus, Jesus, I know there's a lot going on. Can I just have your attention for a minute? I mean, there's thousands of people and, and the disciples are all kind of like covering their mouths. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? There's all these people all around. And, and Andrew says, right here. I mean, there's thousands of people. There's 11 others of us and there's you, Jesus. But right here, here, here. Pointing to this boy, what can we do, he says. What can we do with this boy and his lunch? And a lot of times, our prayerlessness is fueled by that. It's exactly that. It's that idea. Our prayerlessness demonstrates our self-dependence. Want to know why, why you can't get into prayer, why your prayer life is, is dried up, why it's not full of passion and faith? It's because we've become too reliant upon our own schemes and our own strength and our own willpower to get things done. And so the question then is not only is it a rhetorical question, not only are we honest and transparent in our prayers, but thirdly, do our prayers focus um, on the purpose? uh, I'm sorry, do our prayers focus or propose our reliance upon our efforts and resources or upon God's? That is, God, I, I just need you to finish this up. I've got I've got like 75% of this figured out, and I just need for you to do the 25%. Listen, how much of the little little boy's lunch went to the 5,000? You would just have to say, really, the point of this is it didn't go to feed the 5,000. It all came down from heaven. I think the little boy's lunch probably just fed him. Right? And so then the rest of it, Listen, it has has got to be our reliance upon God's power, upon God's resources from beginning to end in our prayer life. Not just finish it up. In that way, it looks like us looking at this. This little boy fed 5,000. Nope, not at all. He didn't begin. He fed himself that day. And the Lord fed the 5,000. Well, the answer to this question is, How far will they go so many? Well, I think the Lord answers that question. Well, just you wait and see, Andrew. Just you wait and see. What kind of prayers are you praying? Where God is now responding to you, just you wait and see. Or are your lips remaining closed? And God is saying, I wish I could show you. But you don't need me yet. God to give me your lunch. Transition. (laughs) Jesus can rescue and he is enough and provides exactly what every soul needs. 
But will he provide for his people? And will he provide for a people who do not likely believe upon him? So let's look in John chapter 12. So we're looking at this question. What is it about Jesus that causes Andrew to want others to meet him? What is it about Jesus that causes Andrew to want others to meet him? When John chapter 12, Jesus is now, as, as we read in John, even though it's an unequal balance, John spends more than almost two-thirds of his book telling us what happens in the last couple of weeks of Christ's life. In John 12, Jesus has already set his eyes upon the cross. He's already turned his face towards Jerusalem. He's already told the disciples several times, I must deliver myself up to be crucified, and I will raise again the third day. And so Jesus is already setting physically, he's, he knows he's going to be crucified on a cross. In John chapter 12, verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever, lose, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, Philip had kind of the same question as the Greeks did and as Andrew did. Who is this Jesus? He wasn't quite sure. Philip wasn't quite sure that Jesus was willing to embrace those who were far from being a son of Abraham, those who were Greeks, those who were Gentiles. He wasn't sure that those outside of Jerusalem could receive saving grace. We'll be learning more about that in our sermon on Philip in an upcoming sermon. But notice again how, how he is between a problem to be solved. Remember, he was at the feeding of the 5,000. Oh, this is going to take half year's wage. Who can afford that for this moment? But now he's between a problem to be solved and Jesus, and he's near Andrew again. So he's with Andrew at the feeding of 5,000. Now he's with Andrew with the, the Greeks who are saying, who is this Jesus? And so he was doing the math with the feeding of the 5,000, and now he's trying to figure out, can Greeks find grace? Can Greeks find grace? That's a really good question. If we take the word Greek out there, I wonder if that informs some of our prayer life as we think about people who we want to see find grace. Can even fill in the blank, find the saving grace of Jesus Christ? Well, Philip was asking that question. Andrew, I got these Greeks here. I don't know. Does Jesus really want to meet with them? They're not sons of Abraham. They're, they're Gentiles. Can Jesus change their life like he changed ours? He was doing that math, and Sometimes we get really mathematical in our, in our uh, negotiations with God and our reasoning with God and God in his ways. But Andrew 
Andrew wasn't a mathematician. He wasn't a bean counter. He was someone who was relational. So with the little boy's lunch, he was like, oh, here's a boy. And now with the Greeks, he's like, oh, well, I don't know the math on it. I don't have like, I'm not the greatest theologians ever lived and figured out everything. But I mean, let's bring the Greeks to Jesus. Because I've seen Jesus change the life of a Samaritan woman at the well. Philip, don't you remember that? A Samaritan woman. I mean, talk about far away. And the Syrophoenician woman who came begging at Jesus' feet, asking that, that God would expel the, the, um, the demons from her daughter's life that had so, uh, wrecked and destroyed their home. Oh, he healed the girl. Many other times that they had seen Jesus come with great mercy and even forgiveness and cleansing of sin to Gentiles. Philip wasn't remembering, but Andrew was. So what was it about Jesus that caused Andrew to want the Greeks to meet him? Is that Jesus could accept. Jesus could accept. This kingdom was growing. This kingdom that Jesus was talking about was growing. And it wasn't just the locals who were seeing Jesus, but apparently people had traveled from all over the place, including from Greece, seeking after Jesus. And what had started with the wise men at the manger was now being fulfilled right before Andrew and Philip's eyes. When Philip was inquired by the Greeks, he didn't know what to do to introduce them to Jesus. But he had seen Andrew seem so comfortable with bringing people to Jesus in those close encounters with Jesus. And he recognized that Andrew was, by nature, a bringer. And so he went to Andrew and he stated the case. And Andrew knew just what to do. Now, Andrew had seen Jesus be very personal in these and intimate in moments with perfect strangers many, many times. From what Jesus had been doing in, in Andrew's own brother's life, Peter, in front of his eyes, to what he had seen him do with the little boy's lunch, Andrew knew that Jesus, of all people, yes, Greeks can come to him too. And so he knew that Jesus was approachable because of these three truths about the Messiah. Number one, Jesus was approachable because he had already approached us as the Messiah coming down from heaven above. Do you recognize that? When God sent his son into this world, he approached us. That makes them approachable. Number two. He knew a second truth about Messiah and that Jesus was approachable because he had already approached Andrew and invited him to to draw near. Come and see where I stay and follow me. Andrew knew that Jesus was approachable, that he would accept people because Andrew reflected back upon his own acceptance. Thirdly, he knew also that Jesus was approachable because Andrew never saw Jesus turn away anyone who desired to draw close to Jesus. Search it out in all of the writings of the scripture. Everyone who desires truly with a sincere heart to draw near to Jesus, he will in no ways cast away. God has approached us He approached you, 
and he will approach anybody who he is approachable by anybody who will come to him. Wow. That's what was at the root of Andrew's understanding. What caused Andrew to want others to meet Jesus? We can't just run forward on this point without recognizing a truth about the approachability of Christ. So we have to take a step back, actually. The fact is that fundamentally, theologically, biblically, in reality, Jesus actually isn't approachable. And that might sound contradictory to everything we just said. You see, God is holy and man is sinful. And man isn't just sort of sinful or just bad, but man is entirely unholy in every way. There isn't just a small gap between man and God. There's an impassable and infinite gap between man's sinfulness and God's holiness. We can't get past this gap. We can't get over it. There's no way to cross that gap. And not only is there a gap, but the scriptures remind us that not only are we far off from God because of his holiness, but we are actually at war with God standing on one side of the gap in our sinfulness. So there's no bridge that we can cross. And if we had a bridge that we could cross on our own, we would cross with weapons. Because the Bible further describes that how sinful we are and how darkened and unbelieving our hearts are and full of hatred towards God and rebellion, that we would cross that bridge with swords and cannons and missiles and we would seek to, what do you know, crucify God if he came to us. And we did. God isn't approachable. And Jesus isn't approachable unless someone does something about it. Man can't do anything about this because our moral ineptitude and our helplessness. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that a man can do to repair the relationship that is broken by his own sin with God. And that means that someone's going to have to do something if we can't do it. That means that God is going to have to do something about being approachable. Since the way in which we would approach him would be with war and that we cannot approach him because he's too far away to begin with. And so someone would have to do something, and God did. And it was through himself, God himself, his son, Jesus Christ, that God made a way to be approachable. He made the way to be approachable. He recognized the damning dilemma that we were in as a human race, and God approached us. There is no one who is able to approach God, but God has made a way to approach him through Jesus Christ. And that is what Christ was saying right in front of the Greeks in our passage in John chapter 6. Look back, please, in John chapter 6. I'm John chapter 12, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's the fruit that Jesus is speaking of here? Well, it's going to be a Greek fruit. It is necessary, he's telling the Greeks, I'm on a mission, and I'm the grain of wheat, and I'm going to be buried in the ground. I'm going to die. 
but it's necessary that I die that you might live. And this is the hour in which the Son of Man will be glorified. And anybody who seeks after me because of the death and the fruit from the grave, anybody who seeks after me will find true life. But anyone who denies and rejects my death on the cross and my resurrection from the grave for their own life, anybody, they will lose their life because they loved their life too much. And so Jesus says this right in front of the Greeks, right in front of Andrew. And you might think that to come to God, you might think that you can come to God. You might be listening to this message. You might say, I'm, I, I figured it out. I, I'm going to weasel my way and I got, side, I, got, I got a deal going on with the Lord. The fact is, it's not going to happen. God's got to come to you. So Andrew's a bringer, but really, Jesus is the true bringer, isn't he? Jesus is the true bringer. Jesus is the bringer that has brought us not only himself, but he has brought us, first of all, a conclusion of our salvation. In 1 Peter 1, Peter describes it this way. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus is bringing to you right now. He is, he is working. He is fulfilling. He is bringing you to an end of the fullness of your salvation. Jesus is a bringer. That word bring is, is carried across in, in the Greek in our New Testament as a word that means to lead or to bear, to carry. It is the idea of, of profero, that it's pro is towards and to carry along, to carry along and to produce to a def- definite conclusion. Jesus is bringing us to a definite conclusion of our salvation. Secondly, not only does Jesus bring us a conclusion of our salvation at the revelation of himself in our lives, but secondly, according to Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus has brought us into the very presence of God where once we were banished from it. Again, bringing that approachability, Jesus has brought Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is, you were led to a conclusion. You were led to a definite end by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been brought into the very presence of God. Thirdly, the third thing that Jesus has brought us as the bringer, the greater bringer than Andrew, he has brought true life and immortality to us by abolishing death. In 2 Timothy 1, the Apostle Paul reminds the young preacher that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death. Let me just park there. Don't you love this word abolished death? He abolishes it like, it's, like he has command over it, like he has control over it. He abolishes it. Who can say to death, go away? Our Savior and our God can say, go away, death. Where is your sting, O grave? Where is your victory? 
Who can say that to death? I love that. He abolishes death. You don't belong here. And then in the place of death, Paul tells Timothy, Christ Jesus, who abolishes death, and in its place brought life that is led, carried us to the conclusion of life and immortality to light through the gospel. And then lastly, what we have been brought by Jesus Christ, he has brought us forth. He has brought you and I forth. He has led us to this place where we are the kind of creation that is a signal, a prominent work, a delight to the Father by the word of truth. Look in James 1.18 of his own. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know, Jesus desires in your life to show forth his power in you in such a way that in front of other people, Jesus says, I can do I can do in you what I've done in this child of God. Jesus desires to use our lives as a demonstration of how far he can bring someone. Is your life demonstrating that? Are you demonstrating that Jesus is bringing you as a first fruit into this world for others to behold and say, I can do the same in your life that I did to them. Well, that's what Jesus desires to bring, bring us forth by the word of truth. By the word of truth. Well, as we conclude, let me ask you something. Do we see Jesus like Andrew did when, when we ask the question, does Jesus rescue Yes. Jesus can rescue, and that's the reason why he can provide and he can accept. He can be approached because he can rescue. He can bring our insufficient faith. He can bring our insufficient strength. We can bring our insufficient witness attempts. We can bring our insufficient answers to Jesus because he completes them. But what we learn from Andrew is that not just the lunch and not just the Greeks and not just our brother, but we must bring our insufficient witness, our insufficient prayers, our insufficient strength, our insufficient faith. We must bring these to Jesus. That's the important thing. If we don't bring them, then what we're really saying in our hearts is he can't rescue. He can't provide. And he won't accept. And that's not the Christ that Andrew, that Andrew became familiar with. And it's not the Christ that the Apostle John showed us in his writings about Andrew and about Jesus. And so the bottom line is, we might think we're really good bringers. But we're really not that great. And we need to repent. We need to repent that we're not being bringers. And the reason why it's a deeper heart issue than simply not bringing. The reason why we're not bringers is because we're not captivated. We're not confident. And we're not consoled in the truth that Jesus has been brought to us. He's the bringer of rescue. He's the bringer of providence, of provision. He's the bringer of accepting. We're not yet convinced.
And for that, we need to repent. Well, let's pray.